0: This is from the book of Micah, chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open. Like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals, And mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Micah 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them; they break through the pa- they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is the very word of the Lord.
1: I told a uh, another pastor recently that we were about to study the book of Micah here at Crosstown, and he commented on how challenging that would surely be. Uh, Yes, indeed, if you find yourself a reader of uh, a, a book like Micah and think this is difficult to understand, you're not alone. The reformer Martin Luther had this to say about the prophets. They have a queer way of talking Like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. So you're in good company if you would dare to admit such a thing when you read something like the book of Micah. If it's this difficult to interpret the prophets, then we should probably be aware And warned that it will be even more difficult to apply the prophets, to know what we are supposed to take away from what we read in this book. That, of course, does not mean that it is impossible to do so. In fact, I would suggest to you that the prophets are about as timeless as any part of Scripture could be. Not only was Micah significant in his own day, but his words continued to be relevant to Israel long after Micah was dead. Israel in exile, some 200 or so years after Micah, Israel in exile found hope in the words of the prophets, and as we know, Micah's prophecies were still considered important to Israel all the way into the first century as having something to say about where the coming Messiah would be born. So as we read the words of a prophet like Micah, yes, we need to proceed with caution. It's not always easy to interpret the prophets. We need to gather all the information that we can in the time that we have, about the setting in which Micah prophesied in order to understand what he's saying, and then we're going to need to think very carefully, very theologically as we seek to apply his words in our day. So we begin this morning by looking at the first two chapters of Micah, because I think I mentioned this in passing last week, if there is any order, any structure to the book of Micah, Martin Luther might say, probably not. But if there is, then many commentators would point out that there seems to be major transition points at chapter 3, 3-1, and in chapter 6. So Micah could be broken down into three sections, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 5, and then chapters 6 and 7. So that's the order I'm going to follow as we look at the first two chapters. Now, as we said in our introduction last week, Uh, Or let me me just see if you were listening. What is the theme of the book of Micah? You got it. (laughs) That's it. Right off the bat, you saw it, didn't you? When Gina was reading to us those first few verses, judgment comes off the pages. Now, in these first two chapters, we can see this particular teaching. Since sin... Is an incurable wound. Salvation from sin requires nothing less than death. If it's a wound that's incurable, then that means death is what's next. Salvation from sin requires, in essence, the judgment of God. As we look at the first two chapters together, notice first God's action against his people, second, God's profit to his people, and then third, God's demand of his people. God's action against his people, God's profit for his people, and then God's demand of his people. The first thing that we encounter in the book of Micah is God, but the Lord, in all caps, This is the God of Israel. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel, Israel's own God taking action against his own people. Now, in verses 2 and 4, here it is, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is is pictured like a king in his royal palace. Are you looking at it? Do you see it? Now, the ESV says at the end of verse 2, temple, I just said palace, but in Hebrew, Temple and palace are the same word. That's because deity and kingship, sovereignty, we might say, or perhaps even religion and politics, these are conjoined ideas. You can't separate them. The palace is the temple. The temple is the palace. So Micah opens with the God of Israel, Yahweh, in his palace, but notice he doesn't stay there does he? Verse 3 says that Yahweh is coming out of his place. He is moved to action. He's coming down. And by that, we should not think of some great descent from many, many light years away. This is figurative language. It is the God of Israel, the king over Israel, stepping down off his throne, descending the steps that lead up to it. He has left his Palace, in order to, verse 3 says, tread upon the high places of the earth. So he is coming, coming to earth. Now, this ought to be good news, right? Your king is coming. But his coming is described in what we would call apocalyptic terms. The language of verse 4 is still figurative, of course. The picture is mountains melting. Valleys splitting open, wax melting before a fire. Somebody make sure we blow the candle out at the end of the service. Waters running down a steep place. All of this signifies God's irresistible power directed in catastrophe against his enemies. So, who are his enemies? Micah's prophecies begin by grabbing the attention of all the people of the earth in verse two. Now, this is clearly a literary tactic that Micah is using here. Verses two through four would have us, if we are engaging as an original reader of Micah, would have us imagining the God of Israel coming down to take the side of his people and overrun all those who oppose them. In Micah's day, we would think specifically of the great Assyrian empire and the looming threat that they presented to Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdoms, who would you be thinking would be identified as the enemies of God today? Who is he coming to trounce? Well, as the king arrives to bring his judgment against his enemies, we, the readers, find ourselves waiting to hear God's answer to our question. To what do we owe this honor that you have come? Who are you coming to trounce? So try to imagine the shock when we hear the answer in verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. The God of Israel has not come to side with Israel against her enemies. No, no. He has come to side with Israel's enemies against his own people. In fact, God's coming was to be seen. Where is this God who's coming? Where is he? And Micah would say, just have a look at the invading Assyrian empire. Now that's shocking, isn't it? It's easy for us who read Micah's prophecies today to not feel this effect because we simply do not identify ourselves with Micah's original audience. Surely we are the good guys, right? God is on our side. We're church people. God likes us. Notice that Micah targets the capital cities of both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel right here in verse 5. Samaria and Jerusalem. So here's a point readers of Micah need to understand. Micah does not tend to acknowledge any distinction between the northern and the southern kingdoms. Both of them comprise Israel. And though he prophesies in verses 6 and 7 that Samaria will fall first under the judgment of God, in verse 9, he says that the incurable wound of Samaria has come to Judah, has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Perhaps it would help if we ask this question of this text. What would be the most optimistic result that Micah could hope for? as he delivered this prophecy of God's coming judgment. As we read Micah today, what, would, what, would, what might the prophet say to us is the most optimistic, what would he hope would be a positive response to his message? Surely it would be the hope that the people of God would repent. Is that, easy? Is that fair to say? That's what he would hope for. So as we read Micah's prophecies today, we should read it as aiming for that exact effect. Rather than reading these prophecies of judgment with our eye on others whom God would surely judge, the enemies of God, whoever came to your mind when you think of that question, you should read them first with an eye on ourselves, a message for us in the church. Now, it's a glorious New Testament truth that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen. But we need to see this truth in its complete biblical picture. For example, Peter tells his Christian readers in 1 Peter 4.17 that the time has come For God's judgment to begin where? At the household of God. And this is consistent not only with what Micah is saying here, but with the consistent and repeated Old Testament teaching. When God comes to judge, he begins in his own house. He begins with his own people. So when we confess in the creed, that the Lord Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, we must not somehow think that that means he's coming to judge everybody except us. <laughs> no, Paul says in Romans 14, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each of us will give an account of himself to God. So let the reader take warning and beware Of God's coming judgment. The message of Micah is aimed first at God's own people, then and surely still today. The message of Micah is first for us, the church. It's for all of us. We must not take it for granted that we are the people of God and therefore there is no coming judgment. The Bible would say otherwise. Now, certainly what Micah would not want his readers to do is to somehow uh, make the assumption that they were exempt from God's coming judgment. No judgment day for us. A major problem for so many who profess to be God's people today is that they believe that. They act like that is the case. We tend to be very soft on our own sin, don't we? And we go about our day acting like, well, like everyone else, denying in our actions, if not actually in our belief, that there is a day of judgment that is coming. Now, that is what was happening in Micah's day, too. So God's action against his people is announced by God's prophet sent for his people, How will God's people listen to God's prophet? When we get to chapter 2, flip over there in your Bibles, if you will, or whatever you do, scroll, slide your finger. Get to chapter 2 in your Bible, and notice you're going to see more of the prophet's pronouncements against Israel, more charges levied on them, more explicit announcement of God's position against his own people, Take a look at verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness. That is the accusation of God against his people. And notice his response. Look at verse 3. Because Israel is accused by God of devising wickedness, God says he is devising disaster in response. Verse 4 in chapter 2 states the utterly unthinkable. The day is coming when God's own people will say, we are utterly ruined. And the portion, that is the, in, the inheritance that was promised to Israel, God would be sure would be taken away from them and given, look what it says, given to an apostate. Now just imagine, do you feel the shock? God is devising a response in which the sacred inheritance would be given, not to somebody better than them, to an apostate, a traitor, as some translations have it. Now, why would God do something like that? Wouldn't that make God immoral? So unpalatable is this perspective that to Micah's audience, he could only be regarded as a false prophet. Verse 6 relates their response to him. Look at it. Do not preach like this, they say. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us, not us. We are God's people after all. Talk like that against those Assyrians, those apostates. But Micah's claim is that God indeed, has sent him. He is a true prophet of Israel. Verse 7, take a look at it, Micah 2, 7, begins with the theological objections of Israel to what the prophet is saying. The end of verse 7 is his response to those who would dismiss him with that theology at the beginning of the verse. God has sent his prophet to warn of judgment, not because he hates his people, because he loves them. For those who indeed are truly the people of God, those who walk uprightly, Micah says, they will respond positively to my warnings. So who are God's true prophets today? In a world where so many claim to speak for God but deliver contradictory messages, how are we to know? And of course, much needs to be said about this than what We can say here but if micah is to be believed then we should at least note this in our file of how do we know a true prophet from a false prophet here's what we should be aware of beware of any prophetic voice who refuses to pronounce warnings of god's coming judgment and the expectation that god has for his people that we in the words of micah walk uprightly. Micah, in fact, expresses his own exasperation in verse 11 when he says this. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, that would be a preacher for this people. (laughs) It reminds me of Paul's warning to Timothy that even in our day, even in the Christian era, those who claim to be God's people will be unable to endure sound teaching. So know what they'll do? They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 2 Timothy 4.3. So Christian, if you never experience conviction, under the preaching of God's word, you may only be listening to those who tell you what you want to hear. Just give us the good news, Micah's audience says. And the irony is that doing that would be anything but good news. God sends his prophets to urge his people to repent, to live uprightly to live as God's people are supposed to live. Now, that being said, we should hasten to add that there are plenty of places you can go, plenty of churches you can walk into where all you're going to hear is words of condemnation, shame, and no grace. There will be plenty so-called prophets of God who are quick to condemn, quick to judge, quick to speak about God's coming day of judgment, if you don't act this way. And here we do well to consider not only Micah's prophetic voice, but what we find in these first two chapters is also interesting, interestingly, something very instructive: the prophetic posture or attitude that Micah takes. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. Here we see a movement from Micah's prophecy of judgment coming, wrath of God, and his own response to it. For this, that is, for the prophecy of doom that he has just pronounced, for this, Micah says, here's how he responds, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. These were prophetic, or or, these were common, customary displays of grief and sadness. He says, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. So far from this prophet's pronouncing of judgment is any sign, any hint of self-righteousness or moral superiority on the part of the prophet. The prophet does not say, God is coming to get you while he prides himself, that he will be spared. Again, remember that the coming judgment of God for Micah is as real as that Assyrian empire knocking on the gates of the city. Micah cannot possibly be unaffected by the coming judgment. He will undoubtedly end up suffering along with the people that he's prophesying to. This is no time then for rejoicing and prideful posturing on the part of the prophet. He doesn't preach down to the people. His fate will be the same as theirs. He's one of them. So when he says in verse 10, tell it not in gath, weep not at all, he is actually recounting the words of someone else in Israel's history. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 20, David's great lament upon hearing the news that the Philistines had won the battle against Israel and that Saul and Jonathan had perished begins like this. Tell it not in gath. Micah is repeating the same words of lament, pointing us back to the way David responded when he heard the news that Saul had perished. I mean, one might think that this would be the time for rejoicing for David, right? He's the heir apparent. He's the next king of Israel. Saul is now dead. David, that means you're the king. And when one thought that they would bring him that good news, hey, Saul is dead. Instead of being promoted, he was killed by King David. David is not rejoicing. He's weeping. David took no satisfaction in the fall of Israel, even if the fall was deserved for the wickedness of Israel's king. Now, Micah is taking the same posture. In the rest of Micah 1, what you find is a wordplay on the name of 12 Israelite cities. It's hard to see in English, of course. For example, the city of Beth Ephra means house of dust. And Micah mentions the city as the place where people will roll themselves in the dust as, again, an ancient sign of deep sorrow. He makes these word plays, these puns, but it shouldn't be dismissed as we probably would with puns. We, we apologize when we make puns, right? <laughs> He's doing this on purpose as a way to describe very seriously the, the misfortune that was coming on his home territory. So brothers and sisters, we ought to be like this when we hear news, especially public news. Reflecting something horrible about those who claim to be the people of God today. We must never feel good about ourselves that, well, at least we're not that church. At least we're not part of that denomination. That's roiled in controversy. That's not the right posture to take. Many of us were interested in the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Did you listen to that? but it would be wrong for any of us to listen to it with glee or with the satisfaction that that church, and those leaders got what they deserved. Listen, the judgment of God, however necessary and deserved, is never a time for celebration. It invites no occasion to say, well, finally, those bad people got what they deserved. Brothers and sisters, we must not find any gratification in the downfall of others. Rather, we should lament and we should learn. We should turn from our own wicked ways and hope in God's grace. You see, God expects something of His people. He doesn't shrug His shoulders if we who claim to be His people refuse to walk in His ways. What are his ways? Notice in these first two chapters what God demands of his people. In chapter 1, it's no secret (laughs) what God hates. The wickedness that he saw in his people that he was coming to judge. We know exactly what it is. Verse 7 says it as clear as can be. It is Israel's idols that God has come to lay waste. Now, what is an idol? Now, you know, you got a picture in your mind when I said the word, didn't you? Some carved image, some figure made out of metal, wood, and stone that a person worships. All right, so no worries. Don't got any of those, do you, at your house? Come visit you, and there they are in the mantle. You don't have those. Well, hang on. This is where Psalm 135 says, is instructive. Psalm 135, we read this morning, defines idols as, here it is, the work of human hands. Those, those, those works of our own human hands that, according to Psalm 135, we tend to put our trust in. They are, in the words of one commentary, the tangible symbols of a society that entice us to act in ways that are contrary to the ways of God. So catch this. Idolatry cannot be separated from immoral actions, which is what Micah denounces in chapter two. Verse one, woe to those who devise wickedness, he says. And then in verse two, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away yeah so they look like successful people rich they've accumulated they've got a lot of stuff micah says now they've actually stolen them in god's way of saying it he goes on he says they oppress a man in his house a man in his inheritance again do not say yep I see it. I know who those wicked people are, but at least I don't go to their churches. I never vote for them either. Rather, let the words of Micah's prophecy drive you to identify and repent of your own idolatry and immorality. Friends, Micah's prophecy must do that if you're going to find any hope. Look at Micah chapter 1, verse 9. Micah says that the sins of God's people have made or are an incurable wound. Ponder it for a moment. An incurable wound is not something that you're going to be able to ignore for very long. It's also not something that you can do anything about. It's incurable. No wonder Micah lamented. The death that had come for Samaria was coming for Jerusalem, and there was no escape. It was John Donne who wrote those famous words, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. What is the cure for our idolatry and our immorality? Short answer, there isn't one. It is an incurable wound. But that does not mean there is no good news. At the end of chapter 2, there appears to be a glimmer of hope. That's why I had Gina read that part too. God promises here through the prophet that he will assemble Jacob, gather the remnant of Israel, and set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. Micah 2.12. Now, in each of the three sections of Micah, we're going to see this theme of God shepherding his people. It tells us that all throughout Micah, with the theme of what? Judgment. There is glimmers of hope. In this case, verse 13 says, There will be an opening through which the people will escape. And in Micah's day, there appears to have been an immediate fulfillment to the prophecy. King Hezekiah begged the God of Israel to have mercy on Jerusalem. Remember the the wound, he says. The wound of Samaria has come right up to the gate of Jerusalem. And you can read all about this in 2 Kings chapter 19, put it together with what Micah is saying, and you'll find in 2 Kings 19 the prediction of Micah's uh, contemporary, Isaiah, who predicted in 2 Kings 19.31 what seems to be the fulfillment of Micah 2, 12, and 13. So that's kind of cool. But what about us today? Well, that's what we're here to celebrate in Advent. Week one of Advent, the theme is hope. That's what the first purple candle is supposed to represent to us. Hope. This is the good news of the Christian faith. Someone once asked the famous missionary, Leslie Newbegin, as he looked to the future, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Things going to get better. Things going to get worse. And his reply was simple and characteristic. I am, he said, neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You got that? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Nah. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Put that together. It means that Jesus did not come and say, cheer up, no judgment day, be an optimist. That's not the message of Jesus. But neither did he say, doom, incurable wound, no way out, It's all over. You've had your last chance. Be a pessimist. Jesus' claim is that judgment day is in fact coming, but for those who follow him, the verdict of that day has already been pronounced. You have, if you are in Christ, already died with him. The incurable wound has done its worst. What the incurable wound of sin has done to Jesus is the worst it could possibly do. It killed him. But don't you see, Christian, that that's not the last word. You have also been raised with him. The incurable wound has given way now to a new creation in which Death itself has passed away. Now I ask you, who else makes that claim? What other God lays out that evidence? The claim and the evidence, not that there is some fuzzy idea of a disembodied life after death, so cheer up. Lots of religions and philosophies and worldviews talk like that. You know that, right? the idea of an afterlife, there's lots of of different religions that will give you some kind of glimmer of hope about what happens when you're dead. That is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is of the sure and certain reality of a resurrection back into life, this life and life everlasting. Who can tell us of such a hope? of the only way out of the devastating news of sin's incurable wound? Well, Micah would suggest to us right here at the end of verse 13 that it is our king who has passed on before us. Not just passed on into death. No, no. But passed on before us into a new creation, into a resurrected life. Who is this king? It is the Lord himself, Yahweh, all caps, the Lord, Micah says, who is our head, the head of the body. It is Jesus who has taken sin's incurable wound and killed it so that what emerges now in Christ is a new creation. That's the good news. What else are you hoping for? Let us pray together. Now, Father in heaven, assure us that this is true. Point us to Jesus, who in real time and space came, took on flesh, so that sin's incurable wound could do its worst on him. And what would emerge then would be a breach in the wall, a way out But the only way out is in Christ, the one who has gone before us, the king who leads us like like a flock, like a bunch of sheep to safety. So, Lord, in grace, reveal to us the idols, the works of our own hands that we have bowed down to this week. Do it so that we could find hope. The one who has already brought the verdict of judgment day to us, and it's good news. We have escaped from the judgment of God because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus. May your people this Advent season become even more Christian, even more hopeful for what Jesus has already brought about so that we might now, by the power of your spirit, live as your people in our day. Pointing everyone to the only hope that can be found, the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come and let us adore him this season, we pray. We ask, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.